You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome back to all of our participants. Andy Mitchell, how are you doing? It's Lent, Father. I'm doing is Lent. I'm doing okay. I'm That's doing okay. Sure. <laughs> Happy Lent. Yes. And we are um we are we're we're just the church has just taken us right back to the uh the ground floor. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Here we go. Genesis chapter two, right? Those yes, here we are for our readings for the first Sunday of Lent. Our first reading is Genesis chapter two, verses seven through nine, and then chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The responsorial psalm is the Miserere, Psalm 51. The gospel is taken from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And the epistle is St. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5, verses 12 through 19. Here we go. Here we go. Genesis chapter 2. Which mm-hmm. we should all know from memory, but there's some there's a passage that's skipped here, right? We're going to go Genesis chapter two, verse seven through nine, and then chapter three, verses one through seven. So, as you're reading it, you'll see that the creation of the woman woman is well. Not only that, she it, kind it of also, appears out of nowhere in the reading today. Yeah, because the <laughs> church, you know, is misogynist. It hates women. It tries to no. Okay, that's all nonsense. No, because we're focusing and not is the not the only part that's not covered. Also, what's not covered is the rivers of the river of life and the garden, all these details. I can try to focus our our attention on one particular aspect of this creation account, and which we're going to read about right now. So let's go. Genesis chapter two, verse seven. Hopefully, people know how to get to Genesis chapter two fairly quickly. (laughs) It's in the Old Testament, Catholics. Old Testament. Testament. Somewhere toward the front of the book. Uh, yeah, I always know when I have trouble when I walk into a like a church hall and we do a Bible study. <laughs> don't and I don't know where Genesis is. Got <laughs> <laughs> some bigger issues dealing with here. All right, Genesis chapter two, verse seven. All right, here we go. All right. The Lord God formed man out of the clay of the ground and blew into his nostrils the breath of life. And so man became a living being. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and placed there the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God made various trees grow that were delightful to look at and good for food, with the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the animals that the Lord God had made. The serpent asked the woman, did God really tell you not to eat from any of the trees in the garden? The woman answered the serpent, 
We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. It is only about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, you shall not eat it or even touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you certainly will not die. No, God knows well that the moment you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God's who know what is good and what is evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eyes and desirable for gaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, Father, it kind of feels silly to ask about context in this. I mean, we're in chapter two of the first book no, of the Bible. Yeah. But that said, I mean, how does this fit into the greater story of, of creation and, and I guess Genesis in general? So we've talked a lot about Genesis at the ICC, and you can always go back and listen to my my talks on the creation account and things like that. But But I think it's sufficient to say here that the first thing we probably recognize is that there are two creation accounts, right? There's there's Genesis chapter one and there's Genesis chapter two. Both of them meet together right there in Genesis chapter two, verse verse two and three, which is the which is the story, which is the seventh day, right? Mm-hmm. And the reason for this, the church fathers tell us, is that is that we can we begin to see. We can begin to see the creation account in a new way once once we reach the seventh day. The first the first days of creation, the first story of creation, is very much a kind of a, a, a listing. Yeah, day one, day two, day three, day four, almost kind of from a distance. Yeah, this is what happened, kind of almost matter of fact. But then once we reach the seventh day, that kind of a of an understanding of creation or a vision of the of the creative creative act of God is it changes fundamentally. Because now, what is because the seventh day is the day of covenant, right? Uh, it's the day in which man and God are meant to enter into a relationship with one another, and the two become one. Hmm. And once that happens, then our understanding of the creation of, of God becomes a very personal, very intimate reality, not as something he's doing over there, but as something I'm standing within. And so gen- the Genesis account changes fundamentally the moment of the seventh day, and suddenly you you enter into the, the story, you begin to see around you, you begin to hear the, the, the water in the rivers and the, and the birds and the trees and all of this taking place. You begin to not only hear about man being created, but you begin to hear man's voice speaking and you, you, you can see the fruit. So there's, there's, there's this fundamental change which happens. And, I, and I, if you enjoy that kind, of, that kind of study as far as being on the inside, which you should, I recommend to you uh, St. Ephraim's hymns on paradise i didn't pull it out of my stack here it is i was you know let's be honest father has kind of only reads about three different four different books they're just stacked <laughs> right here the rest of it's all for show you know? <laughs> but uh but my favorite books are always stacked like right here so saint everyone's hymns on paradise is kind of jumping off the cliff and into the mud of mm, the garden right nice and smelling the flowers and tasting the fruit and 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 it's amazing the the description that he he gives us um as he enters into the story of of paradise and so that's kind of my way of that's there's my introduction about kind of big picture of course in the second 
in this second story, then you have some fundamental movements that take place, right? You have the story of creation from within, mm -hmm. which we pick up here in verses seven through nine. And then the story, the creation of the woman from the rib of Adam. And then immediately the fall, the temptation and the fall. And then, uh, and then immediately the entering of God and this back and forth in which the curses take place, right? And so if you kind of know that structure, you kind of know where you're at in the story, you can easily start to see inside it what's going on. Okay, there's your, there's your context. Okay, now let's talk can I about... Add one, can I add one more thing to the context? Oh, Sorry. Yeah, please. And that is Absolutely. the Genesis tra traditionally written by whom? Moses. Moses. Yeah, Moses. Now, Moses lived a long time after this account. So how in the world did Moses know all these details? Um, and, and, and maybe more importantly than that is why was he writing? Because this helps us tremendously. So when we're oh, talking yeah. big context, it's important to say that. Who's writing this text and why is he writing it? And again, you can go back and listen to our studies on the book of Genesis, the Institute of Catholic Culture. But, but I, I would venture to say that Moses received this revelation in two ways. First of all, by tradition, the handing down but also by uh, revelation. And that is that when Moses entered to the top of Mount Sinai and then lived there in the presence of God, right? When Remember when the golden calf incident takes place, they think he's dead because he's gone up into the fire and he beholds the face of God in some fashion, yeah? And um, I can't remember which church father says this. What does he not see who sees him who sees all? What wow. does he not see? What do I not see if I see him who sees all? Because sight is that idea of communion, right? Yeah. What, what does he not see? And so I would just, I would, I would just speculate that Moses receives this revelation on Mount Sinai, and by way of experience, that he stands in the presence of God and actually kind of sees this whole thing take place. But maybe, maybe more importantly than all of that is, is why is he writing? Who's writing? Why is he writing, right? He's writing to the Israelites at the time of the Exodus who are coming out of a pagan culture, in a pantheist culture in which everything's worshipped, including the sun and the moon and the animals and the stars and all the stuff that's talked about in Genesis chapter 1. So it's a, it's a, it's a not only a catechesis on creation, it's an apologetic catechesis, right, in defense of monotheism. And that should always be kept in mind. In fact, I've seen some, uh, some really some beautiful uh, articles written. Dr. Zakonikis wrote about this, about the serpent, about the portrayal of the serpent, the portrayal of the devil as a serpent. Oh, yeah. And the connection between the serpent and Pharaoh, mm -hmm. who wears the serpent on his Pharaoh yes. thing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know what the name of that is. His Pharaoh thing. Right? Yeah, his headdress. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's there's much to be mined there, but maybe too far for us to go into right now. Wow. That's incredible, though. Some stuff to think about this week, yeah. for sure. Now, OK, so let's dive into the, the passage that we have here um, for this Sunday. Um, why would God plant trees in the garden that he doesn't want them to eat of or touch i mean isn't god kind of setting adam and eve up for failure by doing that yeah it's, it's a it's a good question it's a question that's oftentimes asked of this passage what is the nature of this of this uh, kind of situation that the lord sets up is he setting adam up for a fall right yeah why doesn't he just make a situation that is not 
a temptation. It is not an opportunity for or just the let them all eat. You know, let it rip, man. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. So again, I go back to St. Ephraim, but this time I'm going to a different book by St. Ephraim, and that is his commentary on Genesis. If you really want to study the book of Genesis and like in detail, I'm going to give you a couple of resources. This is number one, St. Ephraim commentary on the book of Genesis. This is St. Ephraim, the Syrian selected prose works translated by Edward g matthews and this other guy but it's put out by cua press catholic university of america you can get your hands on it it's not cheap it's like 60 bucks but if you're into studying genesis and you teach a bible study you got to have this text you can't live without it saint ephraim is a doctor of the church simply because of his scriptural exegesis and so you know you can't live without him the other thing you really want to go uh, uh deep into this stuff is a recommendation i've made you before and that is, I don't know where my book is, Umberto Casuto, C-A-S-S-U-T-O. I think that's how you say his name, Umberto Casuto, who, um, it's tough stuff. But if you yeah. really want to do some damage, you get out Casuto. <laughs> uh, you'll probably understand about one out of every hundred words, but those words you do understand are excellent like, and whoa. gems. Yeah. yeah. But for our purposes, here we go. Genesis commentary by St. Ephraim who said God in his justice withheld one tree from that one to whom he and his goodness had given everything in paradise on the earth, in the air, and in the seas. For when God created Adam, he did not make him mortal, nor did he fashion him immortal, so that Adam, by either keeping or transgressing the commandment, might acquire from one of the trees the life that he preferred. Even though God in his goodness had given them everything, he wanted in his justice to give them immortal, immortal life. That was to be conferred by eating from the tree of life. Therefore, God set down for them a commandment. Okay, so and let me just go kind of give you the, the nuts and bolts of what St. Ephraim's getting at here because I can't read his whole commentary. And he says, look, God didn't make anything bad. That's not the nature of God, all things in creation are good, right? As I said, I think last week, there's no such thing as simply delicious chocolate cake. Right. Everything in creation is good, but, but it is good because it is a gift from the Lord. And if it's received as a gift from God, then it bears within it the gift of life. But if it's received or taken as an end in itself, apart from the the source of life then it become then it's dislocated from its source of life and becomes an an occasion of death right it has no life within yeah. it apart from the one who gives it life does that make sense i hope yeah. right so 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 god gave adam and eve the whole of the created order and and said do not eat of this he placed the first fast for those that say we shouldn't be fasting today god himself placed the first fast on the tree uh, in, in the midst of the garden so that man might, by exercising his free will, choose the Lord above all things and then receive within all things the one he had chosen. Yeah. And the tree of life was was and it was meant to give them life. Yeah. Um, um, the tree of knowledge of good and evil to give them the fullness of of understanding and it, it's it's similar I've, I've i think is my brother used this example or or, or father joseph frankly i can't remember say so his mother 
who places a cook, you know, makes cookies and places them in the oven. The purpose of, of the mother doing this is so that her child can eat the cookie, right? Mm -hmm. But what does the mother say? Don't touch the oven. Don't eat of it right now. Lest if you eat of it, you get burned. You're not ready yet. I want what is there for you. It is made good for you, but I can, you can only receive it in the appropriate time in the right way for it to have that goodness within it. Yeah. And so thus the Lord placed uh, in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, so that by choosing the Lord, we might come to receive all that the Lord had prepared for us. And ultimately, if we come back maybe a little bit more to a foundational level and say, God is love, and love is always exercised in freedom. And therefore, the Lord gives us the atmosphere of freedom so that we might choose what is good. But of course, in that scenario, man can abuse freedom and choose what is not good for him, not because God is looking to undo Adam or trip him up or cause him to fall, but rather to give him the opportunity to enter into a relationship which is not a slave and a slave master relationship, but a father son relationship, which is what God wants for us. And so the story of paradise tells us, it gives us this, this, this situation uh, here as a, as a, um, a way to communicate something even deeper than, than the physical realities of paradise is the spiritual realities, the spiritual realities of paradise. Yeah. And those realities are a reality of love in which the father offers himself to us. And then we must also then exercise the gift of who we are in our offering of ourselves back to him. Well, the serpent certainly uh, did a good job of bringing them away from that. So he tells Eve that they'll they'll certainly be like gods. What is the actual? He says, you certainly will not die. No, God knows well that the moment you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like gods. What actually happens when mm. they eat of that fruit? You, you know, I, I, maybe I, I can rephrase your, maybe come at, at this from a, a, I mean, we know what happens, right? I mean, right. well, yeah. fundamentally, we know what happens. But, but let's take a look at that exchange. Well, first of all, the evil one is not, um, he's not stupid. I mean, he's stupid. Well, he's the most cunning of all animals, right? right? Yeah. So, so notice, notice how he speaks. He doesn't come out with a, 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 a full-blown attack at first, right? He just insinuates. And this is how the evil one works, right? He just twists. Right? Did God say that you shouldn't eat of any of the trees of the garden? Insinuating that God is actually the, the, the author of death, right? Because if he had said you're not allowed to eat, then they would have starved to death, right? Mm -hmm. So he begins by twisting a little bit, just a little bit try to trip us up. Yeah. And then, then once he sees an opening, he goes in and strikes. Let me share with you again, good old St. Ephraim. You shall surely not die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God knowing good and evil. But Eve failed to discern the import of the words of the serpent, who as tempter had said the opposite of what God had said. She also failed to respond to the serpent by saying, how can my eyes be opened when they are not closed? How will I, by eating of the fruit, come to know between good and evil when 
even before I have eaten, they are here in my presence. If I cannot see, how is it that I see all that is to be seen? And if I do not know between good and evil, how can I discern whether your counsel is good or evil? If I already possess these things, why have you come to me? Your coming unto us is a testimony that we have these things. Therefore, by the sight that I possess and by the ability to discern between good and evil that I have, I will examine your counsel. And if I do possess these things that you counsel me, where, where is all of your craftiness that is, un, that is unable to disguise your deceit? She, however, did none of these things to the serpent so as to overcome it, but instead fixed her gaze on the tree and thus quickly brought about her own defeat. She then went after that which her eyes desired and being enticed by the divinity that the serpent had promised her, she stole away from her husband and ate. Notice she ate first. Afterwards, she gave some to her husband, and he ate with her. Because she believed the serpent, she ate first, thinking that she would be clothed with divinity in the presence of that one from whom she as woman had been separated. She hastened to eat before her husband, that she might become head over her head, that she might become the one to give command to the one by whom she was to be commanded. And that she might be older in divinity than the one who was older than her in humanity. Yeah. So he, St. Ephraim says, she should have known. She should have, the very moment that he's been speaking with her, she says, says, am I not made in the image and likeness of God? So why do you tempt me with the thing which God has already given? Hmm. Yeah. But instead, she allowed her her desire for as Saint Ephraim develops this um, to get to to get the better of her. So, um, well, and interesting that Adam, who's standing right there, we read, doesn't do anything about it either. I mean, yeah, like, a, he allows it to happen, right? And I get into this in my commentary in Genesis chapters one through three in our study at the Institute of Catholic Culture. So I'm gonna recommend that you go there because, yes, indeed, in fact, the serpent speaks in the plural to Eve indicating that Adam was standing oh, wow. there yeah. all along. And in that moment, in that moment, the this great, I call it the moment of the great divorce. It was mm -hmm. a divorce between uh, that when, when Adam allowed his trust in God to die in his heart and Eve began to communicate with the one for whom she was not made. She entered into communion. What should have happened at this moment? As soon as Eve is taken from the sight of, of, of Adam, you would have expected they would have beheld each other he would have said, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and they would have had children. Okay, I don't know if the kids are listening, so I'm going to, yeah. right? They would have entered into a, a, a marital communion with each other and, and, and with the Lord, this, this two becoming one. But instead, at that moment, she begins communicating with the one for whom she was not made. Yeah, St. John Christensen, what were you doing speaking with the serpent in the first place? You should have been communicating with the one for whom you had been made, with whom you shared all things on equal terms. Yeah, but instead that communion takes place and the divorce between Adam and Eve, a divorce between God and man uh, ensues. Wow. Super depressing. <laughs> to, wow. So, well, let's look at the responsorial psalm, an appropriate one in the wake of hearing of the fall be merciful O lord for we have sinned 
Yeah, the, the Psalm 51, I would encourage you to read this at home, meditate upon it. It's very beautiful. Have mercy on me, O God, in your goodness. In the greatness of your compassion, wipe out my offense. Thoroughly wash me from guilt, and of my sin, sin cleanse me. For I acknowledge my offense, and my sin is before me always. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. A clean heart created me, O God, and a steadfast spirit renewed with me. Now, I just, just stop there for a minute, how important it is that we're, that uh, at this time of year, that we begin to meditate upon our own participation in the fall. Not only do we inherit a nature that is a fallen human nature, but through our own sins also, have we not chosen to seek life apart from the one who gives life? Um, in reality, we live our life in this way, uh, especially in relationship to food as the source and sustainer of our life, especially in our medical medical world and the medical practices, not to say food is bad or not to say doctors are bad, but ultimately, and I think that a lot of this came out, I got to be, I got to put it out that I'm going to get a lot of hate email right now. A lot <laughs> of this came out during the pandemic yeah. when we became so trapped by fear for our bodily life that our trust in the Lord began to die in our hearts. And we began to seek life, not in the Lord, but in the medical establishment. That's not to say the medical establishment doesn't have its place. It's not to say the pandemic wasn't real. It doesn't, nothing. I'm not saying anything about that. So don't, I don't want to hear it from either side. Father Hezekiah was for vaccines, against vaccines. I'm not saying anything about it right now. But, but I, I will say that there was a general movement, and I've seen, I still have parishioners in my own church who have not returned, hmm. out of concern, fear for bodily life. And I ask, do you not desire the fruit of the tree of life? Do you not seek to live forever with the Lord? Do you not believe in the bodily resurrection? And this is what, what drove the early Christians to be willing to accept martyrdom willingly happily because they says you know you can you can you can take me down right now but you will not have the last word for i will rise again bodily so what you do to me now is temporary but my separation from the lord will be an eternal condemnation and i can't go down that road yeah and so the first thing is to acknowledge and how many times we also have sought life apart from god like our first parents, in the attention that we pay to our our, our businesses, uh, to our retirement, to the just the things of this world that become the dominant force in our life, and then and then of course we're going to hear the gospel of Jesus. I don't want to go too far here, but here I think with Psalm fifty one is just that opportunity at this time as we uh, are here at the beginning of our Lenten journey to to just take an account and a willingness to put a mirror up and admit how many times in our lives we do this. And, and on a daily basis regarding regarding how we eat, that really ultimately, while we might bless our food before we eat and things, you know, ultimately our mentality of, of the sustenance of our life being in the things of this world. Well, that kind of leads us quite nicely into our gospel we go. for this weekend in uh, Matthew chapter 4. We will be starting with verse 1 and reading through 11. Let me know when you're ready, Father. 
Here we go. Matthew chapter four. That's got to go to the other side of our Bibles. Other side of the Bible. Okay, good. Matthew chapter four, verse 11. All right, here we go. At that time, Jesus was led by the spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And afterwards, he was hungry. The tempter approached him and said to him, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become loaves of bread. He said in reply, it is written, one does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and made him stand on the parapet of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and with their hands they will support you, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Then the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their magnificence. And he said to him, all these I shall give to you if you will prostrate yourself and worship me. At this, Jesus said to him, get away, Satan. It is written, the Lord your God shall you worship and him alone shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Familiar reading for the uh, first Sunday of Lent here um, in Matthew's account. So, first of all, where is this happening, Father? Um, okay, we this know, is, right? This is a good question. It's important to know because you have to remember that for the Jews of the Old Testament, the the center of the world was Jerusalem. It was believed to be the original location of paradise, and. In fact, today you can go to Jerusalem and just outside of the ancient walls, not the wall, current walls that are there, but outside the ancient walls is the place where Jesus went to willingly be crucified. And there is the traditional location at the place of the crucifixion, traditional location of the tomb of Adam, mm. right, just outside of paradise. And then we have to add to that then the biblical perspective of exile. Okay, so if we just go back very quickly, we can't go too far into this, but just very quickly, if you go to Genesis chapter three, Genesis chapter three, verse 23, chapter three, verse 23, therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he had been taken. Now, we know from Genesis chapter two, verse 10 that a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. So what do we, what kind of geographic thing, what do we know about the, the, the what paradise looked like? Well, it, the river flowed out of it, which means it's got a slope, yeah. right? It's a mountain. Yeah. And, and this led St. Ephraim and other church fathers to, to talk about the fall and our exile as an exile down into the valley, right? Remember, we sing the beautiful Marian hymn in which we speak of the valley of tears. Yeah. And we look up to the one who gives us the fruit of life. 
And this is all based upon, of course, uh, understanding of paradise. We who find ourselves in the valley, distant from the Lord and distant from paradise, distant from the garden. And now we have the story of Jesus's temptation in the desert, down there in the valley, right? If you know Jerusalem and the area, Jerusalem's a mountain uh, in a part of a mountain range, and then it goes down to the Jordan Valley, okay, and where the Jordan Valley is, and that's where the baptism took place and the temptation in the desert. And we know where this was because early the early Christians held as sacred the place where Jesus went. So where was this? Well, it's right next to where Jesus was baptized. If you go, if you take a look again at Matthew chapter four that we were looking at, You'll see in chapter three, in the final verses, verse 13 and following, that this is the story of the baptism of Jesus in which he's revealed on earth as a man restored to sonship with God, right? Behold my beloved son, right? We hear the voice of the father calling one of us. And this is fundamentally important when you're when you're thinking and reading the scriptures and seeing the intervention of God. And we, we often say, well, that's no big deal, right? Behold my beloved son and God, my will please. Well, of, of, I mean, that's obvious, isn't it? That the father is going to be pleased with the son. The son is the eternal word of God. He's sinless. Right. So, of course, the father is going to be pleased with him. No, the great, amazing and miraculous moment here is that the word of God is now standing in the flesh. A man, like one of us. And the father now says to him, Adam, my son, whom I am well pleased. For he sees the son revealed. He sees man revealed with the gift of the spirit within him as the, as the spirit of God descends upon him, being restored to the pre-fallen state. Right now, it's not as though Jesus was fallen and then now he's restored. The fathers are very clear about this, that the baptism of the Lord is all revelatory. It's a revelatory of a of an existing reality. But is but the, the existing reality that's this revealed to us is man now brought in. Yeah. Brought into this relationship and having taken our humanity to himself. Jesus now does with us what we could not otherwise do. Yeah. Namely walk in the spirit and do what Adam and Eve had failed to do. Yes. And this is the, the, the center and core of what is taking place here for Jesus has just been revealed as Adam before the fall. And then Jesus immediately does what Adam did, which is gets himself hungry Yeah, because he knows the nature of the tempter. I like to say that at this moment, Jesus tempted the tempter. He mm -hmm. set the trap for he knew what, what, what the devil had done when he saw our first parents hungry and he knew that he would do it again. He went out in the desert and said, bring it on. Yeah. I'm going to share with you Father Alexander Schmeyman who is a wonderful Orthodox theologian. He's writing on Great Lent, and we're sending out throughout the Lenten series excerpts from this book. And, and this is what he says. Fasting or abstinence from food is not exclusively a Christian practice. It existed, still exists in other religions and, other, and even outside religion. 
as for example, in some specific therapies. Today, people fast or abstain from all kinds of, uh, for, for all kinds of reasons, including sometimes political reasons. It is important, therefore, to discern the unique Christian content of fasting. It is, first of all, revealed to us in the interdependence between two events which we find in the Bible, one at the beginning of the Old Testament and the other at the beginning of the New. The first event is the breaking of the fast by Adam in paradise. He ate of the forbidden fruit. This is how man's original sin is revealed to us. Christ, the new Adam, and this is the second event, begins by fasting. Adam was tempted and he succumbed to temptation. Christ was tempted and he overcame that temptation. The results of Adam's failure are expulsion from paradise and death. The fruits of Christ's victory are the destruction of death and our return to paradise. It is clear that in this perspective, fasting is revealed to us as something decisive and ultimate in its importance. It is not a mere obligation, a custom. It is connected with the very mystery of life and death, of salvation and damnation. Wow, Father. I mean, beautiful thoughts from, from Father Schmemann there. But so if Jesus overcame all of that, I mean, why, why do we have to fast today then? Oh, that's, that's, a, that's a good question, Annie. It's, um, it's, uh, it, it, it's one that's certainly tested today, right? I mean, we, we hear all, in all sorts of places, yeah, well, we don't really, really have to fast. A lot of people don't think that we do need to. Right. Or, or it's, so it's become such a minimal thing in our lives that it's kind of like nonsensical. And, and, and we do a little bit of fasting on a couple of days a week or a couple of days out of the year. And that's, that's about it. But this is not, Jesus says, says when you fast, he doesn't say if you fast, right? So mm-hmm. it is expected and has always been a Christian practice to, to keep a fast during this time and not just on prescribed obligatory days, but throughout the season. So that, I mean, I think we kind of know the answer to this, and that's so that I might come into conformity with the, with the life of Christ, so that what he has accomplished and done for me that I could not otherwise do might extend into my life because of the gift of grace that was given to me on, on the day of my baptism. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And therefore, the mysteries of Christ are working here now within me, that I might die to my old self, that I might rise again in glory with the Lord. And so the fast is this opportunity for us to, to us by grace, to reveal within our lives what is revealed in the life of Christ. And there is, it is of of fundamental importance. It is not something extra. It is not something that is of custom or of obligation, but of invitation, an invitation to us to enter into the mystery of the Lord's life and then to choose as Adam and Eve were given that choice. And here's the, I think a really an essential part of it is the Lord doesn't force himself upon us. Our baptism, while it affects in us a transformation, still needs to be received by us. This is the church's teaching. There is a point in our life where we must say, I do choose Christ. Yeah, Mm -hmm. what took place on the day of my baptism needs to, as I come to my adult life, needs to be chosen. And, And just as the Lord gave us that choice in, in paradise. And, and then our relationship of love can be established as we choose what is going to be the bread of our life. Yeah. I'm kind of curious. So 
It says, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit for 40 days in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So it sounds to me like Jesus knew that if he fasted, if he got hungry, that would attract the devil to him. So should we be expecting the same thing? Oh, I, mean, I love this. Fast, uh, I got can... to tell you, there has been no, I, I've never, I've never experienced a Lent in which I actually took that Lent seriously, that, that the evil one didn't come out with, I mean, full, full force. In fact, I was giving a little instruction to my community this past Sunday, encouraging them and to, that we're going to enter into the fast together. And I, but I warned them, I said, don't, don't, this is not something to be taken lightly. For when you begin to fast, a, a few things are going to happen. One is that you're going to start to see more clearly. And when you start to see more clearly and, and, and discern more clearly, you're going to start to see your own faults more clearly. Eh? Your sins are going to start coming to the surface. You're going to see them, but they're also going to be more active in your life because there's like an earthquake taking place in which you're trying to regain control of your passions. And they start coming to the surface when you kind of push yourself to that edge. Um, and so don't be surprised when you see that, when you see that w w along with fasting comes a lot of anger, a lot of uh, resentment, maybe some some stuff you've been harboring for a while in your relationships with, with those around you. As things start to come to the surface, relationships become very uh, difficult during the fast. There, there is, but, but, and, and because we're trying them by fire, right? And then, of course, you should also expect the evil one knowing your state of weakness to attack you in that moment, especially in regards to relationships, because we are made in the image and likeness of God. And, and, and God, of course, lives a life of loving communion, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all eternity. And so we now are given this life of relationship, and he wants to break that so that the revelation of the Lord is not made present on earth. And so expect the attacks to come. Expect the battles of of depression of of uh, one of the one of the ones that comes out most clearly is is a sense of despair because the evil one wants you to despair to lose hope to say I can't do it it's not going to happen I can't I can't get there and so you just know you kind of recognize his fingerprints you see them coming push them aside yeah. And you keep your eye upon Christ, upon the goal, which is Pascha, which is the resurrection. So my simple answer is, Annie, yes. Mm -hmm. you, want to, you want to take Lent seriously? That uh, You got to keep the fast. And, and um, um, because no one's going to rise from the dead who has not first died with Christ. That's mm -hmm. what this season is given to us as so that we might, we might make our own the words of the Lord that man does not live by bread by the things of this world alone by the temptations of the kingdoms of this earth by all of these things that are that the evil one is tempting us with who tried to tempt the lord with but rather our our our, our, our life is found in the bread of god of, of the word of god himself and that's why the church says increase your 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 prayer your reading of scripture you're consuming that word yeah i draw close to the eucharist during this time to be fed by the only one that can truly feed you. And then having reattached our life to the one, the source of life, then all the good things that God has given us are given back to us, right? The tree of knowledge of good and evil becomes good for us. As St. Ephraim says, if they had eat, if they had been obedient, 
if they had obeyed the command of the Lord not to touch the oven with a cookie in it, then the Lord would have done what every good parent does. He would have said, son, here's an oven mitt. <laughs> Let me show you. Go ahead, grab and pull gently in the thing. Now, use and pull that out now. Let it cool for a moment, and we're going to eat the very thing that's made for you. St. Ephraim says that God would have given them the gift of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's a, the knowledge of good and evil. It's a Hebrew mirrorism, it's called, in which two of the furthest things apart are, are put together. And so you say the whole thing in between, right? That's what uh, yeah. the alpha and the omega right? The knowledge of good and evil, the fullness of knowledge. And of course, knowledge is not just heady stuff, but it's experiential knowledge. Knowledge is the union of the knower and the known. So St. Ephraim says that if Adam and Eve had been obedient, they would have eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Their eyes would have been opened to see what God prepared for them, namely the tree of life. And they would have gone forth to receive the gift of eternal life. But instead, they ate in disobedience. Their eyes were open to that which God had prepared for them. And at that very moment, they were cast out of paradise, knowing what they had lost by their disobedience. Now, I want to share with you a beautiful piece, a hymn, really, it's a piece of poetry that is chanted in the Byzantine tradition at this time of year, in the voice of Adam. It says, Adam sat opposite paradise, and bewailing his nakedness, he lamented, Woe unto me that through wicked beguilement was persuaded and robbed and was driven far from glory. Woe unto me who in simplicity was naked and am now perplexed. O paradise, no longer shall I enjoy thy delight, No more shall I behold my Lord and God and fashioner, for I shall return to the earth from whence I was taken. O merciful and compassionate one, I cry unto thee, have mercy on me who have fallen. I think we can pray those same words ourselves this time of of year and and given the image of of the prodigal son. He says, what have I done? And then begin our journey back to the Lord, which Father Alexander Schmemann calls this time of, of bright sadness, a sadness where we find ourselves, and yet a brightness of the remembrance of what God wants for us, and then to begin our journey now back to the one for whom we have been made. Um, before we move on to the epistle, Father, just quickly, can you talk about why Satan chose the the temptations that he did and and perhaps like where is Jesus quoting from and his answers to him certainly Annie I think I can do so by by not telling it myself but I'm going to share with you a beautiful quotation from Saint Gregory the Great who says our ancient enemy rose up against the first human being our ancestor in three temptations he tempted him by gluttony by vain ambition and by avarice And he overcame Adam when he tempted, because he subjugated him through consent. He tempted him by gluttony when he showed him the forbidden food of the tree and told him, taste it. He tempted him by vain ambition when he said, you will be like gods. He tempted him by adding avarice when he said, knowing good and evil. Avarice is concerned not only with money, but also with high position. We rightly call it avarice when we speak when we seek high position beyond measure. But the evil one is overcome by the second man. 
in the same way as he boasted of overcoming the first man. He exits our heart at the same juncture where he first made his earlier, his earliest inroads. But there is something else we have to consider in this temptation of the Lord, dearly beloved. When the Lord was tempted by the devil, he answered him with the commands of sacred scripture. By the word that he was, he could have easily plunged his tempter into the abyss. But he did not reveal the power of his might, but he only brought forth the precepts of scripture. This was to give us an example of his patience, so that as often as we suffer something from vicious persons, we should be aroused to teach rather to teach rather than exact revenge. I always love the church fathers and the way they come in and they give us inspiration through this text to see to, li- to begin to live as the Lord lives, even in this time of difficulty, because we're going to have when we take the fast seriously, we're going to encounter these people all around us and difficulties and challenges and questions. How am I going to respond to it? And we have the image of the Lord going to the cross with all the spitting and the whipping and the hatred. And he says, Father, forgive them. Yeah. That image is given to us now here, even at this far distance from the cross as we're out in the desert with the Lord. Um, but I, I just come before you leave this text, you asked where this took place. And I talked about this distance from Jerusalem down in the valley in, 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 in the Jordan Valley. We actually know the location of this because the first Christians held on to it, as I said before, and a beautiful monastery has been built there on the cliffs overlooking the ancient city of Jericho, really uh-huh. only a few steps from the location where Jesus was baptized. We also know that location, but you can walk from the Jordan River to the place where this happened in the Judean wilderness. And that monastery, we're going to pull the picture up here. It is quite amazing. You'll see it there built into the cliffs of the desert. There the monks still live and pray. And it is an amazing uh, place to visit. So there, there you have it. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I think we don't even really need a transition to go to our epistle. I mean, the epistle this this weekend really kind of sums everything up for us as if, you know, you don't get it on your own. St. Paul's <laughs> going to just tell you what this is all about this weekend. Let's go ahead and take a look at it. We're at uh, at Romans chapter 5, mm-hmm. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 19. 12 through 19. Brothers and sisters. Well, hold on, Annie. I'm still turning there. Oh, I'm sorry. Gee whiz. Romans chapter 5, Romans okay, verse chapter 12. Five. All right. I just got to make sure everybody has a chance to get there. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. All right, here we go. Brothers and sisters, through one man, sin entered the world, and through sin, death. And thus, death came to all men, inasmuch as all sinned. For up to the time of the law, sin was in the world, though sin is not accounted when there is no law. But death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin, after the pattern of the trespass of Adam, who is the type of the one who was to come. But the gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, how much more did the grace of God and the gracious gift of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow for the many? And the gift is not like the result of the one who sinned, For after one sin, there was the judgment that brought condemnation, but the gift, after many transgressions, brought acquittal. For if by the transgression of the one, 
Death came to reign through that one. How much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of justification come to reign in life through the one Jesus Christ? In conclusion, just as through one transgression, condemnation came upon all, so through one righteous act, acquittal and life came to all. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Yeah, I only say to, to that the, the, I don't like the translation. I'm sorry, it's a beautiful sure. text. Yeah. But in conclusion, no, because St. Paul continues to write, okay? We get a sense that this is the end of what St. Paul's saying. It's not at all, right? Because St. Paul's leading up to the gem, which is, which is not in this text which is the result, right? So mm-hmm. the fact that that Christ reverses the sin of, of Adam is something of a, of a self-evident reality, right? If we understand that he's taken our human nature to himself and therefore filled us once again with the life of God. But the ultimate question is, is, is where this text leads, uh, leaves off, yeah? For just as through disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so through ob- the obedience of one, the many will be made righteous. And I add the word, the question, how? And this is a this is fundamentally uh, important because St. Paul continues to write in the following verses into chapter six, which is not a break in the text, but a continuation of St. Paul saying, and that is that we must be baptized into him. That we might participate in what he just said about Jesus. And this is so, it is, is so fundamentally important to us who are preparing now with the catechumens in our church for the coming of their baptism. Yeah. And we'll continue to hear these themes now throughout the Lenten season because the, the epistle and gospel were given primarily as an instruction to those who are preparing to enter into the Lord. And all of us will renew our baptism with them as they enter into the baptismal waters. And so I would encourage you to keep reading because chapter six, verse verse one, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means, right? So this, this is not going to, this righteous is not going to be given to you because you continue in your sin, but rather it's going to be given to you because you stop sinning and are baptized into Christ, right? And then by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. And that newness of life, of course, is, is the life that was given to Adam before the fall. It is the life of God himself in which we choose the Lord and a relationship of love with him above all things, which is all what the temptation of the desert is about. It's all about what the fall was all about. It's all about this time now during our Lenten season where our life is all about. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities 
and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.